You're listening to the Art Problems Podcast, Episode 6. I'm your host, Patty Johnson. This is the podcast where we talk about how to get more shows, grants, and residencies. Today, I talk with Hannah Cole about the theme of fear, how it can impact our careers, and what we can do to manage these issues. And I wanted to tackle this subject because the election is just around the corner, and I think we're all probably rightfully nervous about it. And right now, money, money fear, a subject on which Hannah is an expert, is easier to discuss than political fear, although we will cover both. And that's really saying something for me because I've had a lot of fear around money in my days. And that's been a direct result of the stress around not having very much of it in the past. And this has been for just simple things. Some of these things that I think many of you will be able to relate to, like feeling anxiety around saving receipts for pizza and beer, expenses that seem frivolous on paper, but are actually essential to launching DIY shows with volunteers who need to be fed, and more complex activities like filing quarterly taxes. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time on that with Hannah and all of these different things. Now, Hannah is an artist and an accountant, and she runs the Sunlight Tax Money Bootcamp program, a self-study program designed to give artists the financial literacy and simple tools they need to manage their finances. I took Money Bootcamp myself last year and can attest to its thoroughness. And if you like this podcast and you want to keep up with Hannah, you can do that by subscribing to her podcast, Sunlight, which covers all things tax, money, and art career. And I am also a subscriber to this podcast, and I can attest firsthand that it is excellent. You can also take her free masterclass designed to help you simplify your taxes and grow a stash of what she calls fuck you money, something we get into in the podcast. And we've linked that masterclass in the show notes. And without further ado, Hannah, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me, Patty. I'm honored to be here. Well, thanks so much for coming. I really wanted to have you on the show because I wanted to talk about a subject that, I don't know, is not very fun for a lot of people, fear and money, but I think they're really important conversations to have and they really require us to be a little bit vulnerable sometimes. Mm -hmm. And I thought that one thing that we could talk about just in the beginning is why and how politics affects our money. We're very close to an election right now. And it seemed like this is a sort of timely thing to discuss and also maybe frame some of the problems that we have. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Well, I mean, taxes are what is there's like a famous Biden quote, and probably other people have said this, but don't tell me what your values are. Show me what your budget is. And taxes are the budget, right? They are how we fund what we do in this country and they are our common agreement. Now, that's tricky in a world where it doesn't feel like we can agree on anything. So there's sort of some inherent difficulty with our total polarization right now as a country. But nevertheless, taxes are what make our society functional. So they're important. And I think this sort of like training that some in politics have done to make us all think that all tax is always bad, that sort of knee-jerk reaction that I speak to people who kind of believe in a like more communitarian vision, they still will have reactions about paying taxes that are super negative. And I just personally, I think you have to buy into the fact that like, we're trying to uphold a society and like, I don't know, personally, I want to like not drive on dirt roads and I want to have an educated population who has basic, their basic needs met, those things are important to me. And that's what taxes do. And then there's lots more that taxes can do in highly functional societies. So there's, there's kind of like work to do on the political representation side of like where our money goes. But to me, that's sort of the background of like, just why it matters at all. But in terms of where we are with taxes now, the thing that I see, because I run a tax practice, and so I do the taxes, I look at the finances of artists all the time, is that 
we do not have a tax education in this country. And I think it's bananas. The fact is, a lot of creative people think it's their fault. They think that they are the ones who are messed up. They think, oh God, I don't, I never got an education in this. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm here to tell you, nobody knows what they're doing. Nobody knows about taxes. I was hired recently to give a talk to a group of real estate brokers, and they didn't know any more than a room full of artists knows about taxes. So artists aren't unique in this. They just feel like they are behind even when they're not. But then the other thing I think is really important to say about that lack of tax education in this country is it's by design. And this really sucks. And I think it's worth really working on this. But we allow lobbying in this country and lobbying makes our taxes terrible and they don't have to be. So we allow H&R Block and Intuit and Intuit owns TurboTax and QuickBooks. We allow those two companies and others to lobby Congress to actually keep our taxes complicated. Why? Because those companies make money when you feel confused and you feel like you can't do it on your own and when it's not easy. So we could have a system where taxes are easy and they have this, you know, the Philippines taxes are way easier in Spain taxes are way easier. There's lots of models to look to internationally where taxes are, you get a letter from the government and they say, here's, we already have your documents. We've calculated that this is what you owed. If it's already been withheld off your paycheck, as long as you agree, you don't need to do anything. And so that's what taxes are. I like that. Isn't that awesome? I mean, it actually works that way in other countries, in many other countries. Now, artists wouldn't be done there because we are, when you're an artist, you're running your own business. And so you would still have to do taxes for the business part, but everything else would be taken care of. You wouldn't have to do all the other stuff. So it still would be easier and better. I remember this was maybe, I don't know, a while ago now, like five years ago, I think there was like a, there was a podcast that was a, it might've been a reply all podcast that was a follow-up on a ProPublica article that talked about all of the various ways that Intuit made sure that they're free taxes that they are supposed to offer to people did mm-hmm. not, they, they didn't list them anywhere. They had them removed from Google. They have like a bunch of two options to choose in terms of which one you would choose to do the free taxes if you're under a certain income threshold. And they made it completely confusing and misleading. Mm -hmm. And I don't even know what happened with that. But I do know that they didn't offer it. I think at the time they didn't even offer anybody refunds. They just... uh, started hanging up on people. <laughs> oh god, <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah, what you're think the thing you're referring to was a major scandal and it's not that far in the past. It's only a couple years ago. Yeah, every US taxpayer who has income under it's around $70,000 has a right to file their taxes for free. And that is the agreement that these big tax prep companies have with the government that like okay, you can make money doing tax prep, but you have to build the system for free filing. Well, the same people who make money off you doing taxes with them are the ones in charge of building the system for free filing. There's a conflict, there's a conflict of interest there inherently, right? So into it, the scandal, and I want to be careful and not say too much because I don't know every single detail of it, but I know Hassan Minaj did a really awesome video presentation on it on his program. Um, what is, I think it's called Patriot Act. So that's worth looking up. Maybe we can link to it in the show notes. But basically they got the contract and then what they did was they just captured, because it was theirs, they owned the free file, they just buried the Google search results. They made sure it was unfindable so that all you could find was the paid version. That is so evil. (laughs) It is evil. It is. Yeah. I'm just here to say, I think basically like lobbying and conflicts of interest like that are just wrong. I mean, they're legal, but they are wrong. So... One of the questions I had for you that I think we can talk about is just like why the arts community has so much fear around money. Mm-hmm. And I I do think that maybe part of it is tied to the fact that we don't have education in this country around taxation. Yeah. But maybe because you work with artists all the time on their money, you have some other ideas about what that's about. Mm-hmm. Well, 
I used to joke with my friend in college because both of us were not very tech savvy that like we would call the, this was back when you could like, I graduated in 2001. So that to, just to date myself, like you could call like tech support and the some like computery person would come and fix your ethernet cable or whatever. And she and I used to joke that computers could smell fear and that the tech guys, their first move was always to do the simple stuff, like check that it was plugged in. I think that artists are like that with taxes a little bit. Like we assume we don't know how it works and that we're broken. And so the fact that like, oh no, you don't understand this because we don't, you never got a tax education and you should have. And that's, that's wrong. The system is wrong. Whereas artists like really take it in a personal way. Like, oh, I am terrible with money because I don't inherently know what a 529 plan is. But why, why do you think artists have gone the route of, oh, it's my fault? I mean, I think that that's a product of like where we are in society. I mean, for one, like we're sort of outsiders positionally in society anyway. And also, you know, if you go to art school, I think it's pretty easy to see that you're the outsider in school too, right? I mean, what art department is funded as lavishly as the business school? But I think also like we don't get a good a lot of us don't have a good financial education. None of us have a tax education, but a lot of us also don't have a good financial education, basic personal finance education. So we feel really behind on this stuff. And I think because there's such a cultural disconnect between the kinds of people who go into accounting and finance and the kinds of people who go into art, fine art, I think that we can feel especially alienated and like it is especially difficult. We feel so judged sitting in a room with those people because we're such diametrically opposed personalities. And it's almost like our careers feel like an indictment one to the other. The accountant feels threatened by the artist because the accountant feels like, oh my God, I'm not creative. I'm not cool. I don't, I don't know how to talk to this person. And the artist feels threatened because they're like, oh my God, I don't know about money. I don't know about taxes. I'm messing everything up. I don't have a big profit. I don't know the terms that this person is using. So it's like, you're set up badly, just like getting in the room together. And so it's just hard to feel safe enough and comfortable enough to admit what you don't know, to start from a baseline of zero and just be like, hey, I need you to explain this to me. I'm a smart person, but I don't know any of the terminology. I need you to explain this to me like from zero. I mean, I also wonder whether like the kind of endless do-it-yourself superpowers that are afforded to artists sometimes kick like bite us in the butt a mm. little bit because if you're expected to solve all these problems on your own and you don't have any education on them and then you like you don't do very well with some of them yeah. <laughs> like, like wait a minute this is it's like smart people I think it's smart people we're used to teaching ourselves things we're used to being able to like scour the internet for what we need piece mm -hmm. things together and then make something work and when that doesn't work out, we're a little confused. Totally. And so I do think it's a hit on the ego to not know, like to not be able to figure something out that we are told from the get-go we're supposed to be able to figure out. And people, and I think the flip side of that is that on the one hand, we're supposed to solve all these problems. And then on the other, I think there's the expectation that artists are supposed to be bad at money. And if you internalize mm -hmm. that, and believe that. Yeah, it hurts you. I mean, yeah, if you tell yourself a story, if you believe that artist stereotype and you can like, you can have kicked it out of the room in a lot of ways, but still have it there when you're like looking at your money. Yeah, and if you're telling yourself this story that says like, I'm bad at money, it's hard to stop being bad at money. Like you have to actually believe you can do it. I'm here to say like, I've been audited. I've like had shoe boxes full of receipts. I've done everything that's the horror story as an artist. And then I went back to school for accounting, got a tax credential and started a tax company. So I am on the other side of it. And I'm here, you do not need to start a tax company or getting get accounting education. But I'm here to say that like, if I can do it, you can do it. And by that, I mean, like do your taxes and like handle your money. So I have a question about that because like, yeah. it sounds like you're saying you started out not knowing how to deal with money. Is that the case? Like, did you, oh, yeah. did you st 
So when was that? Was it when you graduated from art school? Was it before? Like, what was the, just walk me through the process of like where you were and how you got to the other side. (laughs) Like, how is it that you now feel like you have some control over this? Yeah. I mean, so much of it honestly stems from two things. One is the fact that I always wanted to be an artist and I always gravitated towards sort of anti-capitalist stuff and also just like the arts. And the other side is just being born a woman. To be honest, like when I was growing up, I was never really talked to. It was never explicit. It was just implicit. I was never talked to as though I would need to know this stuff. And nobody ever pulled me aside and was like, hey, you know what? You should save like this kind of proportion of your money every paycheck you get. Or like, here's how payroll tax works. Or (laughs) just like, I just never got it. And so I like got all the way into adulthood and felt like, oh my God, I don't know how any of this works. And it just like, compounded into a feeling of terror about it all. So when I graduated from art school, you know, when I got my MFA in 2005, that was the first time I like really had to face it. Um, Because, you know, artists are self-employed. So what that means is you have to do it yourself. Like there's nobody withholding from your paychecks and you have to pay quarterly taxes. And there's like, and you have to do bookkeeping and these things with no education, it's impossible to set up with no education. I'm also here to tell you, it's not that hard. You just need a little boost. It's not like you have to go back to school or anything crazy. But I just like got out in the world and I was like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? And I remember going to my dad's accountant and thinking, okay, this is like, feels like a lot of money to spend. And I like went into that room. I was like, okay, I'm paying full price for this like fancy accountant. And he's going to answer all my questions. And then I got in there and I felt so judged, so unsafe, so absolutely foreign and alien. I mean, he acted like it was a favor to me that he would bother to look at my return. And oh God, um, it was terrible. And also like I had read a book, like I really was trying to do it right. I checked a book out of the library on freelance taxes and I like read up in the rules. I had two residencies out West that year when I finished my MFA program. And I like diligently kept a mileage log because I knew that that mileage was deductible. And it was like thousands of miles of driving out to New Mexico and Wyoming from Boston. And this guy just like, didn't even notice my mileage log. Like I gave it to him. I summarized it for him and he just forgot it. And it just made me realize like it was a $4,000 deduction and he just missed it. And it was like, he didn't even apologize. (laughs) I had to throw out the tax return. He did pay full price for it and then do it all myself anyway. And I just realized like, I just didn't count as a real person to him. I was like, I had to pay full freight, but I was not going to get any info. And I felt so much shame at not knowing the terms that there was no way I could even formulate a question in his presence because I needed so much background info to even get to the question. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. 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 And I see that constantly. I mean, like, just to talk about like two people who've been in my program. One, one guy that I'm thinking of, this like incredibly talented photographer who went to Brown. He like sent me a photograph after I did a lecture <laughs> as a thank you. I and mean, it was like, he's like a real go-getter. So, so smart and so good at what he does. But he's, his mom was an immigrant. She was a single mom. And he felt like, I think a lot of people in that position, if you're an immigrant or you're from a single mom, you're like, just trying to kind of make it and you're not getting that next level stuff like a personal finance education. And so he just felt behind from the get-go. He joined my program because of that. He was like, he just felt like he knew he needed the info, but he just, there was no way he had, could have gotten it when he was growing up. And I talked to this, I was talking recently to this other client of mine, who's um, an indigenous person in New England. And we were talking through like some tax that she owed and she just like pulled me aside and she was like, Hannah, I just have to be honest with you. I feel so much historic trauma around tax debt because the U.S. government taking things from me, it just feels, it feels traumatic. (laughs) So like, oh, wow. Can you even, I know, isn't that, isn't that intense? So I just think there's lots of, it's not just the fact that you're a creative person, that you're an artist, it can be your identity. There can be lots of reasons that you feel trauma around money or, you know, left out of the conversation about it. 
And that can be, you know, I, there's, it's not all because you come from a historically marginalized background, although it might be. I mean, I, I have white men who feel just as left out of all of that stuff because they grew up in a single wide trailer or they, you know what I mean? There's all kinds of reasons that people feel like, well, this is for everybody else, but not for me. Well, I think there's a lot of different ways that people deal with hardship and lack of hardship mm-hmm. when it comes to money, because there's so much baggage around money and who you are and your own, your identity. I know mm-hmm. that for, for me anyway, like I grew up and my family was at times very poor and mm-hmm. sometimes just fine, depending on like whether my parents both had jobs and like you know, how their business was going when they did that individually. But Mm -hmm. one of the things that happened when we were very poor was that we never talked about it. Mm. And so I got very afraid of money from a really Mm -hmm. early age. And I was really afraid that I didn't, that I wouldn't know how to manage it. And I remember like my account being overdrawn when I was like in... I was in university and I wasn't, and the reason it was overdrawn was because I wasn't really paying attention to, like, I didn't have a lot of money and I was mm-hmm. too afraid to track it yeah. because I, I felt like I was doing something wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. And it took a really long time for that to, I don't even want to say for that to go away. I don't think it did. I don't think it ever did go away. Like the Mm -hmm. only thing I was really able to do was to figure out like, this is too hard for Mm -hmm. me to do myself. I need somebody to help me track these things, particularly when I don't have a lot of money. Yeah. You know, because like there's too much baggage around it for me Mm -hmm. and it's too difficult for, for me to do just on my own. Totally. I hear that. I mean, I have seen, there's so many different ways to react to that kind of fear and that kind of feeling, that is a big one is like just avoiding or not looking. And of course that makes the sort of like gulf of fear in your, the pit of your belly, like really grow. Yeah. You know, I remember my father saying once they like, is it actually, he's like, well, it's easy to manage money when you don't have a lot of it because there's not that much to do with it. (laughs) And I thought, (laughs) That would be true if I didn't feel anything ever. <laughs> right. There's such a crazy thing about, I think this is a reason that we judge ourselves about money is like economists would have you believe, economists run their whole profession as though money is neutral. And, um, you know, money is like, it's your relationship with your father. It's your fights with your partner. It's how society views and values you. <laughs> Yeah. Can you think of things that could possibly be more loaded? Oh, that's amazing. Just to have it put that way, quite honestly, (laughs) just to understand that money is not neutral. Not at Um, all. Because I think that I do think that that is I'm not sure if it's the demand that is placed upon us, but I do think that one of the things that gets taught in various forms of like business teachings, let's say, is to only make decisions based on data because data doesn't lie. And Mm -hmm. data and money are usually very closely tied. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a real truth to that. But by the same token, you can't, you can't make all your decisions based on, on something that like, that's just a number, I think. I think we're getting maybe a little bit... (laughs) like abstract. Well, can, but, I, can I make it concrete? Cause I actually, ha- yes, I feel please. like I can tie this up. So I think it's both. And like something that I do in my work is I really try to hold space for people and the feelings that they have around it, because I get that I have felt judged that way. And it's just awful. It's a, such an awful feeling to feel like somebody doesn't see you as valuable because you're a profit and loss statement. And that's like, if you even have a profit and loss statement, that means you've got some bookkeeping already going, right? <laughs> like, yeah, you're doing well. You're already like kind of getting on top of it. But like somebody just looking at your numbers is like, what? how are you contributing to society? You're obviously just like a, a freeloader. You know, <laughs> and you're like, no, but, I, but I'm making these incredible experiences for people. I like, you should have seen that show. I just like busted my ass over for the last two years. So I think the thing is, Money is neutral in the sense that dollars in, dollars out, 
that is just a fact. It's just like your weight is neutral, right? That's just a number on a scale. But how you feel about it is very much not neutral, right? Like it's sort of right. But I think like, I think what happens to artists is that money is not our primary driver. For a lot of businesses exist to make money. And I'm here to say that I want you to make money. Like artists should make more money than they do. And I want society, like it's part of my work and my political advocacy is like trying to push for better treatment generally of artists and to like make the case why for tax protective reasons, we really need to be more focused on profit motive. But that doesn't mean you change your vision. That doesn't mean artists are going to inherently be different people or like drive towards profit only. The fact is, one of the most amazing and wonderful things that we do in the world is stuff that's beyond money. We create connection between people. We create these incredible experiences. We like bring new ideas to the world. We do all this stuff that is not related or it's to the side of money. And the fact is like, I don't know a single artist in the world who like offered an incredible solo show would be like, okay, well, I'm going to really calculate out the budget and I'm going to really try to be very modest on my materials, blah, blah, blah. Because their primary concern was like making the maximum profit from that show. Most artists given a solo show are going to be like, I want to make the most badass show I can possibly make, right? And that's a good attitude because good things come from making excellent work. But the fact is, your numbers are going to show that. And so your numbers might look smaller than they could have had you had money as your primary focus. And you have to remember your value and the value you're bringing and how incredible that show was and how many cool conversations came out of it, et cetera, et cetera, and not feel judged solely by the numbers. I mean, you have to accept that if you behave that way, your numbers will show it. And that's, it's okay to be okay with that. Well, so this does lead me to a question. I'm not entirely sure how to formulate this, but I think maybe the nut of it is like, does increased financial, like where does the agency come from increased financial literacy? Because if we understand that increased financial literacy does not necessarily mean you will make more money, (laughs) it just means you understand what money you have. Like, Is there a path to making more money if you have increased financial literacy? Like, Mm -hmm. I guess that's there. It's a multi-pronged question, but maybe you understand where I'm going. Sure. Well, I think a couple things. If you know what tax advantaged accounts you have access to, and you know how to take a windfall, whether it's a grant or like you sell a couple pieces of art out of a show. And so like what to do when you get a chunk of money. That can be really helpful because you can save a lot on taxes. The biggest, the most extreme example I've ever had of that was this client of mine. She let me name her. I would not normally name a client, but she, her name's Leandra Lasur. She's really, she's worth looking up. She's really amazing. But she won the art prize. And that's a prize that's $200,000 that they give out in December. And the fact is, if she had just, if she hadn't called me, she would have lost $20,000 of that. We basically threw some tax planning. We managed to save $20,000 of it that would have just gone right out the door in taxes. And she managed to get to keep it and stash it in her like retirement fund because of some planning. So using there are strategies where you can make the most of what you have. And I think that's really valuable. Year-end tax planning. I've got to find a sexier thing to call that, but essentially tax planning. <laughs> it's a way to, it's like, I think of it like finding, finding twenties in your coat pockets. It's like, it's finding money that's already in your life. It's not hustling for more. It's finding money that's already there, but that isn't in tax advantaged accounts and putting it into places where it works harder for you and grows with compound interest. So I think making the most of what you have, that is a huge role for financial education. I had another point I wanted to make, but maybe it'll, it'll come back to me. I mean, I would say that the average artist does not make that much money from their art business per se, though, right? Wouldn't like $200,000 is a lot of money to manage. Like if you're making less less than, say, $15,000 a year on your art, which is not at all uncommon, are you still going to get like, what's your financial gain there? Or what's it? What is your gain? Yeah. 
for managing that money? I think there's lots. I think knowing how valuable tracking deductions is, even when you have small dollar amounts of income, is really valuable. Like understanding how self-employment tax works is really valuable because self-employment tax is a 15.3% tax that goes on all of your art income. And the only thing that reduces that is tracking every expense. So basically understanding how worth it it is to track your expenses, that's a big deal. Maybe I just taught you that now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So tracking every expense, that's a really big deal. And that's a way that every artist can save money immediately from better financial knowledge. Knowing what to do with chunks of money when you get them in, because most artists are making their money unevenly. We don't have, we're not living on payroll, right? So like we don't have the same amount coming into our account every two weeks. We get like, you sell three paintings and then you have a dry spell and then you get a little grant and then a dry spell, right? It's chunky. So knowing Yeah, and to, you have like really good years and not so good yeah. years too. Yeah, having some strategies for like what to do with your taxes in a good year versus what to do with your taxes in a not good year. And I also think, I think this one might be the most important is just knowing how to value your time. Because you already alluded to this with the like artists or magicians at doing it ourselves, which really truly is an incredible thing that we do. But there's times it's not worth doing things yourself. And there's also a lot of things disguised as opportunity in the art world that are just a lot of free labor and they really do not have a lot of benefit to you. And I think your numbers can help you clarify that. There's a lot of stuff. My spouse and I talk about boondoggles because I used to go on a lot of them. (laughs) And (laughs) we like had a real come to Jesus about like what things are presented to me as opportunities are not actually opportunities. Their time sucks. And um, I'm sure that you talk to your, you know, the people in your membership about this, Patty, but like wasting a lot of time on quote opportunities where you're being asked to provide some ridiculous amount of labor for some incredibly tiny bit of income or recognition is. Yeah. Like pay for the shipping to get the work there and like all sorts of Auxiliary expenses that aren't really that, I don't know if the word, like, they're not really that auxiliary. They're like really Mm -hmm. core expenses that artists are expected sometimes wrongfully to Mm -hmm. cover. And so knowing the difference between what is an actual opportunity and what is a boondoggle Mm -hmm. is really key. Yeah. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on knowing the difference, Patty. Between a boondoggle and a like and a real opportunity? Oh, that's a really good question. I mean, I do think, <laughs> I mean, this goes off perhaps on a little bit of a tangent, but you know, one of the things I do deal with a lot inside the membership are scams. Hmm. People mm-hmm. who are like, I would love to show your work. I'm going to pay for everything. And then suddenly they're not paying for anything. And things that, one seem too good to be true, mm-hmm. usually are. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. People who write and say, oh, I love your art, but don't say anything about it or don't mm-hmm. mention you by name or mention you by name, but call you the wrong name. Those are all <laughs> real clues. Yeah. And I think like this happened to me recently. A number of artists, this happened to a number of artists first, I guess I'll say this, number of artists in the membership had their Instagram accounts attacked and stolen from them. And Mm. this was a uh, sort of scheme that was going around a lot last year. It's still going around where somebody would say a friend that they knew, like, can you vote for me in this contest? And you go vote and like whatever that link leads you to gives them the ability to steal your account. They can't do that if you have two-factor authentication set up. Hmm. In my case, I had an email where somebody had said that like I had violated the terms of Facebook and Mm -hmm. my workshop account was being deleted. And it arrived in my priority inbox. I -hmm. had just had, you know, an ad rejected. And so I had literally been talking about the reasons that they were listing mm-hmm. for the deletion of my account. And yeah. so I went and they were like, 
filled out all the applicate, like all the information I had to feed my Facebook password, Uh which I did. And the reason my account was not hacked was just because like Chrome recognized that it was a malicious attack and didn't send the, the information to them. And then when I saw that, I went back and I looked at the email and of course it was like some ridiculous hotmail address or something, mm-hmm. right? But the thing is, and the reason I bring this up is that most ads or like most scams seem really obvious mm-hmm. unless you're in a bad place, Ugh. right? Yeah. It's when mm-hmm. you're in a bad place, you're worried about something, they contact you at that exact moment and mm-hmm. that bit of insecurity you are feeling about whatever that thing happens to be plays out and the next thing you know you've lost something you couldn't really afford to lose totally oh my gosh that resonates so much yeah i mean i i counsel people all the time because i teach um how to invest and I, about like compound interest and stuff And every time I'm talking about it, I get really excited because it's so cool when you understand how compound interest works, it gets you really excited about investing. And the fact is investing is slow. It's like get rich slowly. And anytime you add the word quick into that, it's like, okay, well, that's a scam. (laughs) And like, (laughs) there isn't, there just isn't a way to do it that doesn't involve tremendous luck, but your luck more often than not goes the other direction. So it's like, Yeah. Compound interest. It's awesome. It's as awesome as it gets. And then there's always somebody in the audience who's like older, who will be like, Oh, well, this is so annoying. I'm, you know, I'm 65. What am I supposed to do? And I'm like, you need to listen to me. This is still what the best strategy is. And there's nothing you can do to like speed it up. That desperation, that sense of guilt and shame that you didn't take action until this late in life, that is going to make you like open you up as a target for lots of scams. This is, this is really real. So it's like that situation of like putting it off and feeling desperate is like what ripens you for people being like, well, I have this like guaranteed return on your investment opportunity. And uh, that's never, that's just never real. I honestly love the slogan, get rich slowly. Um. <laughs> I didn't invent it. I think somebody, some finance person has it. Oh, really? That's too bad because it's, it's very like, that seems like the most honest thing, right? Like it is. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, that's what generational wealth is. I mean, and I'm telling you, that's where big, big money exists. Definitely about the slow, the slow burn. What does generational wealth mean? Ah, well, first of all, just like wealth versus income is important. Wealth is kind of what you've got, like what's in the bank and it, in, it includes all your stuff. So it's like your house, your assets, your business might be part of your wealth, um, your retirement accounts. Income versus income, that's just how much money you're earning, right? So that's the difference there. There's an income gap, but there's also a wealth gap and the wealth gap is even bigger. So generational wealth means wealth that is passed down from generation to generation. And that is how massive quantities of wealth get amassed, especially if you're lucky enough to have been born to one of the groups that that was allowed for. I feel like I need to say that because, you know, like historically, if you were born to enslaved people, you were not, you were legally disallowed to pass anything on to your children. So you have a role to play in these things. That's terrible. Well, I mean, people who were enslaved were not allowed to even own property. I mean, right. I mean, it's kind of, it's truly heinous to think about, but they were property. They weren't allowed to have property. So a person who was enslaved couldn't have had a will. It was illegal. So literally was not capable of passing on generational wealth. Meanwhile, the person who had the plantation, that plantation's going to go down to their sons and daughters. So that's what generational wealth is. It's the next generation gets it. Yeah, I think I just didn't go all the way down the line in terms of what all of that meant wealth-wise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's uh, that's really significant. For sure. Well, and let me just say that I wrote this article for you, Patty, for RF City years ago about the estate tax, which is like a really awesome progressive thing that helps kind of spread the wealth around to people who didn't earn it. Like, And um, so if you guys want to go check out 
<laughs> that old AFC <laughs> article on that, it's, it talks a lot about generational wealth and how those, how the tax stuff really favors it. Well, we can link that up in the show notes. And of course I, is it on your website too or no? Yeah, 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 it is. It credits your, it credits AFC, but yeah, it's on my, uh, the Sunlight Tax blog as well. Um, excellent. Now, one other thing I wanted to talk about was just this concept of perfectionism and how that can play into fear, the fear that we have around money. Because mm-hmm. I know that that's something that you talk a lot about. And I wondered, I guess, how you have encountered perfectionism in yeah. your practice and with your clients, artists. Yeah, I love that question. Yeah, I have just seen it really play a role in people's taxes, as funny as that sounds. The biggest way is specifically around estimated paying estimated quarterly taxes. And I say that because estimated quarterly taxes are basically how someone who is earning money as a self-employed person, how you prepay taxes throughout the year so that you don't get hit with a full annual tax bill. And it's really important for your financial health to do that so that you're breaking up your payments into smaller amounts and paying a sort of estimate of what you owe as you go. So you don't get that huge bill and get into tax debt and payment plans and awful stuff. So that's one of the big things that I teach is how to do estimated payments and calculate what you owe. Well, what I find is that perfectionism holds people back from getting on board that system because it's very understandable. The IRS is scary and it feels like, oh God, like they can they have all these powers and they can do stuff to me and I feel I want to get it right. But what people do is they're so concerned about getting things right that they freeze and they don't do anything. And not doing anything is the worst possible thing you could do because not doing anything guarantees that you get four penalties a year plus daily interest on your unpaid balance. So guarantees you pay money you don't need to pay and are penalized. Whereas making literally a payment on time, but of any random amount that is wrong prevents the penalty and will probably prevent a lot of interest. So it's like a situation where doing something, taking very imperfect action is way, 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 way better than doing nothing because you're scared. So this is a place where fear just hurts you so badly. And just like, I think it's just really freeing when people really get the concept that like an estimated payment is an estimate. You cannot know the correct number and it's really okay to get it kind of wrong. Listeners, I just want to repeat this for you because I think this is such a key piece of information. Pay your estimated taxes, (laughs) whatever you think, (laughs) whatever you think that number might be so that you don't incur those penalties. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> PSA from Patty. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually, it's not a PSA from me. It's really a PSA from you. I'm just repeating what you've said because that really hits home. And I think one mm-hmm. of the reasons I will come clean for all of you here, I didn't pay my estimated taxes for years. And that was because I never knew how much money I would have in the bank. And there were times when I couldn't pay the amount of tax I owed. Mm -hmm. And that was just the way it was. And that created, I also had a lot of fear around perfectionism. So that was definitely, I don't, I guess perfectionism for me is a, a term that I guess I wouldn't use for myself just because I, I'm not afraid of taking imperfect action, but I am it doesn't mean that I don't get self-conscious about doing things, you know, mm-hmm. even if they are imperfect. And, but there were just, I was too afraid. I was too afraid to make those payments. It was yeah. too much for me. I, yeah, I hear it. Well, I mean, I think that speaks to your, the question you asked before, like, why is it good to be, get an education in this stuff? And one of those things is, when you understand what you're going to owe, you don't have to feel this like fear and out of controlness about like whether you'll have the money or what that bill is going to be. Just like knowing what bill is coming and being able to see it coming in advance rather than get walloped by the surprise on April 15th. It's just worth so much 
heartache? I mean, I will just say that, you know, I pay quarterly taxes now. For anybody who's nervous about doing it, every time I pay my quarterly taxes, I'm still afraid. Like it didn't go away. (laughs) I still don't like doing it. I fundamentally believe in the importance of taxes. I think taxes probably should be higher. I Generally, I don't think my taxes should be that much higher. I think wealthy people should be paying more tax because they can afford it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and oh, I totally agree. I think one thing that I know a lot more about my financial situation than I ever used to. And I think that that's really helped me make more, I feel like I have more control over things. But the core things that made me nervous. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they've ever truly gone away. Like I am still afraid that I'm not that good at numbers that because I can't add very well. And that's actually true. I can't, I'm actually not that good at adding Uh (laughs) that like that will somehow hinder me from like doing everything that I want to do. And I guess for anybody who's listening and feels that way too, or feels like they, they might not be able to get out of that, that feeling. For me, I've just gotten, I've, I've gotten more used to dealing with it. Mm-hmm. And that's been really helpful. It's been really helpful to just get used to dealing with the fear. And that fear does, it gets smaller. It doesn't go away, but you at least get used to it. And it's like, it's not, you're not friends with fear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you kind of wish that you didn't have to have this bad roommate, mm-hmm. but you do find a way to negotiate the spaces. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, can I talk a little bit about my fear? Yeah. Yeah. I had so much fear when I was younger and before I had this education. And I really felt like the people around me in my life, I would just defer to them. And that is not a good, that is not a good situation, not a good strategy. And I, I, in the art world, I think we have all encountered getting into situations where like things are shady. Somebody's kind of, I don't know, you know, you work with somebody who's like clearly not ethical or who's looking for, you're like a a young person out of school and you feel like you're getting taken advantage of. And I think it can be hard to see those things and financial fear put me in more situations like that. And that the more steady on my own two feet I have been financially, the less, the more I've recognized those situations for what they are. And the more I've been able to get out of them, avoid them, see them coming and just say no, just like, frankly, sort of value my own time and worth and artwork. Um, That is exactly what I would say my experience has been too. Mm, Good. There were definitely things when I was younger that I felt like I had to do, even though I felt compromised Mm -hmm. about them. Mm -hmm. And that as my financial literacy improved, as my financial situation improved, I felt like it was easier to say no to things that I knew I shouldn't be doing in the first place. Totally. Yeah. And I don't think you need to be rolling in money in order to be able to have that power, but you do have to learn to value your time. That's really important. Even and understand opportunity cost. You know, if you take up all your time on boondoggles, then you don't have time to make the incredible work you want to make or to like apply to the grants you want to apply to or like do the outreach that you know you need to do. I think it's a good framework to just think about like when you say no to something that is looking like a boondoggle, just think, well, how can I say yes to myself? That's sort of a cliched phrase, but it's real. And you can say like, okay, well, I could send five outreach emails today. You can kind of like make up for it. Like I will create opportunity by doing fill in the blank. I will take that time I would have done on that. And instead I'll apply for this grant or instead I will make appointments with these three gallery directors. I love that. Is there, as we wrap up this podcast, I want to ask if, if there's like one thing that you would like artists to take away from this podcast and like what you have 
to offer as a as an accountant, as a financial person in this world, helping artists, like what would that be? Yeah. Well, I would say I have a couple reframes for you that thinking, just shifting the way that you think about certain things is really helpful. So I'll give a couple of them sort of rapid fire. Bookkeeping can feel like a chore. It can feel annoying. It can feel like homework you don't want to do. But actually bookkeeping, the role of it is to lower your taxes. So I like to think of bookkeeping as (laughs) self-care. And I actually really take this very seriously. I clean my desk. I put on nice music. I like make a really delicious coffee or sometimes I'll have a glass of wine and I like make it a really pleasant environment. And through doing that, like month after month after month, I have come to really look forward to bookkeeping and actually make it a positive. So that's, that's one way of reframing. I love that. It's like giving your pet a treat or sitting on your lap when they don't want to sit on your lap or something like that. And then eventually they learn to really like this thing and associate (laughs) it with good stuff like, or getting a bath, giving, giving a dog a treat for a bath. Totally. And you can be the dog. (laughs) (laughs) You can be your own dog. But it's true. I mean, if you read any book, you know, Atomic Habits or The Power of Habit, they talk about this. Like it, it really works. It feels funny when you start, but if you actually do it, it really works. Another reframe I want to give is the idea of retirement. Nobody likes it. It feels impossible. Nobody likes to picture themselves frail or sick or old, but I just want you to think of it as fuck you money. <laughs> it's like, it's money that says, hell no, I don't have to do that. I get to do what I want. That's what, that's what it is. So saving to me, saving, and especially like when you do a little tax strategy around it and put it in advantaged accounts and have it invested. So it's benefiting from compound interest. Those three things I call the power triangle. When you do that, you are maximizing money that you already have. This isn't hustling for more. It's just taking what you have and hypercharging that. And so, yeah, don't think of retirement. Think of fuck you money. Who does not want fuck you money? I love it. I want fuck you money. Don't we all? (laughs) Well, Hannah, I want to thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been super great to have you here. For everybody listening, we have show notes that with all the links of things that we've talked about. And, and, and Hannah, I will see you online. Awesome. Thank you so much, Patty. Thanks for the work that you do for artists. And uh, thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please leave a review and share it with a friend. It really helps get that valuable information out to more artists just like you. You can find all of the names and the links that we reference in this conversation at workshop.art slash podcast.